the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Gotta get the maid in here, too. Can we do that? Can we work on that, Jarrell? The dust in this room? Unbelievable. I think the guy that sits here every afternoon is the, makes the big mess. Coffee stain sitting here and... Old tea bags. And <laughs> Welcome. Good to have you with us. It is the Thursday edition of Lifeline for the 17th of January. And uh, day number 26 in the shutdown, just in case anybody's keeping track. I, I have to say, the touche between Nancy Pelosi and the president was, was admirable. I mean, she says, we think we'll disinvite you to deliver the State of the Union address. It's dangerous, you know. <laughs> no security. They're all at home waiting for paychecks. And the president said, yeah, and that little junket you were going to take to uh, Egypt. By the way, with a, with a major shutdown, why, why, is the, why is the Speaker of the House, how was the Speaker of the House find the time to go on an overseas trip to Afghanistan and Egypt? So he said, yeah, if you want to go, you may want to fly commercial because you're not taking anything military. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so, oh, let the games begin. All right, let's get down to cases. We're, you know what? We're decidedly going to stay away from politics tonight. Aren't you thrilled to hear that? Hour number two this evening. We're going to begin our uh, 2019 careers series with Dr. David Petrovay, and it will be Thursdays at 6 p.m. for the next many weeks, talking about the new shape of the working world, all that has changed and will continue to change, how to retool your career, retool your thinking, how to get the kind of career that really satisfies you, um, how to get out of a rut, how to put most of your skills to work that maybe you're kind of sitting on the back burner. It's a fascinating series, um, and it will run tonight, uh, well, our installment here for 2019 in the 6 o'clock hour. So I hope you'll um, stay with us for that. The 46th annual March for Life will be tomorrow in Washington, D.C. I guess with the government closed down, we can still do a few things in Washington, D.C., Western Regional Director of the National Right to Life Committee, Brian Johnston, joins us now from the nation's capital. Is that right? You're in Washington, D.C.? I am indeed. You're there. Nancy Pelosi wants to be out of the country, but you've made it to Washington, D.C. What's wrong with this picture? (laughs) Exactly. Well, you know, uh, it doesn't cost any government money for me to be here. There you go. There you go. hold the government accountable. The job of the government is really pretty straightforward and kind of limited. One of the first things, though, is to protect the innocent. 
And that's why we hire policemen. That's why we give them badges, is that innocent lives have to be protected in a just society. That changed in 1973. The right to life, as you know, was kind of scribbled out. And the Supreme Court said, uh, we don't think those are babies anymore. The laws did before that did say that in all the states. And it's funny, it's not just me. Sandra Day O'Connor said that, literally, in one of her dissents, that Roe versus Wade has no foundation in either law or logic. It's on a collision course with itself. She was the first woman on the Supreme Court. But right now, the probably most outspoken woman on the court, the loudest feminist, is a very important person, and that, of course, is Justice Ginsburg. You may not know that Justice Ginsburg also disagrees with the premise of Roe. So that's pretty alarming, and a lot of a lot of pro-choice people don't realize that, that Justice Ginsburg, the pro-abortion hero, doesn't really like Roe because of what it did. And again, you can, by the way, I know, Craig, you know about our our show uh, that's a podcast, Life Matters. Life. We actually kind of do an interview about her and have many of Justice Ginsburg's quotes. And it's important because most of us realize, I'm not sure she's coming back to that court building. She's very ill. And if you think things are, are tense between Congress and the president right now, just wait till he has to appoint another Supreme Court. Oh boy, if that if that happens, it's it's going to be all bets off on it. You can you can certainly know that it's going to be pandemonium and mayhem in Washington D.C. That's right, and you know what Justice Ginsburg said. She thought the right to privacy. As a lawyer, she felt that was a very poor foundation to overturn all of the laws. Because even in California, we had liberal, and this is what she said: even those states with liberal abortion laws were not allowed to even protect that child at all. And she felt it created a backlash, so that you and I, all pro-lifers, were a backlash to Roe. She didn't like that because it's caused her worldview some problem. But she would love an even stronger abortion decision based entirely on gender, because only women can have babies. So since, since that's the case, only they should be able to decide which ones should live because they're the ones that are carrying this baby and they get to decide, well, if I want to, I can be free to kill one of these kids if I feel like it. And as you know, they never put those words to it. It's about pregnancy. The pregnancy is a condition. We're talking about a human being now. It's how all of us came into existence. And so the reason those laws had been there were to protect the child and the mother and and now those laws are, are gone. And so we're living in an interesting time in history, and the right to life cause was really birthed, you might say, at Roe v. Wade. And I think it's not unlikely that it will be overturned soon. So we have to be ready for that and ready to lovingly move forward to get as much protection as we reasonably can for those children. Uh, what's your sense right now? Uh, the march, as we mentioned, will be held tomorrow. It will be the 46th annual March for Life. Yeah. Uh, weather conditions notwithstanding, what's the atmosphere like? Any major difference with, with the lack of uh, the government up and running? No, it's. Uh, I was on the plane last night, and, and a lot of kids on the plane. We see a lot of folks uh, 
that come, and uh, many groups, many buses, of course, from the Midwest and the East Coast come. Not as many buses drive cross-country, but a lot of people do fly. And there's people from across the nation that come here and have always come here. I expect to see a big crowd again. Historically, the media has ignored it. And, Craig, as you know, we've been doing this for years, and we're used to the media ignoring it. Last year, the president made a point of addressing the crowd and <laughs> let's say, uh, dressing down the popular media, which is what he does best. And, uh, you know, of course, they want to cover the women's march. That women's march is trying to be a counterpoint, but they're having problems, and it's because of their messaging. Uh, it's really based on on issues that are outside of actually women in this sense, and this is what I point out in, in, in our program about Justice Ginsburg. Justice Ginsburg is being vaunted as a feminist leader, but her accomplishments aren't really what you may think. For example, it was Sandra Day O'Connor was the first woman on the Supreme Court. If you think this was important, then she should be recognized by the feminist as a great leader and hero, but she's not. Because radical feminism isn't about women. It is not about women. It's about an ideology. And if you do not repeat that ideology, so you could be a woman of incredible merit, an incredible accomplishment like Sandra Day O'Connor, or someone that you and I, I believe, you may have uh, spoken to her, but she was a very good friend of mine, Mildred Jefferson. Dr. Mildred Jefferson was a former president of the National Life Life Committee. She was the first black woman to graduate from Harvard Medical School, a brilliant woman, and incredibly well-spoken. Her problem is she did not toe the feminist line. She was a, a woman of incredible accomplishment, but ignored by feminists because they don't want to advance women, really. They want to advance the ideology. Yeah, there, there's an agenda behind it that, uh, that, that, that clearly, if you look deep into uh, not everything, but a lot of what is, is upheld within the ideology, it really, in many respects, runs contrarian to ultimately uh, advancing the rights of, of women. The National Right to Life uh, March for Life taking place tomorrow, 46th annual March for Life, on the nation's mall in Washington, D.C., rain, shine, government open or not, it will be happening tomorrow. And a number of great keynote speakers that will be there, including Abby Johnson, who ironically is going to be here in the Bay Area two weeks hence for the West Coast Walk for Life. Um, also, Dr. Aldita King, of course, been a frequent guest on this program down through the years. Uh, she, the niece of Dr. Martin Luther King and uh, many others. So, uh, again, that will be taking place tomorrow. And uh, we'll no doubt bring some coverage for you and some highlights during our show tomorrow night. Our thanks to Brian Johnston, reporting live from Washington, D.C. And uh, we're going to take a time out right here, get you updated on some traffic. We'll do that right now as we say good afternoon to Michael Bennett, the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. We are going to switch gears and 
talk about some issues here that, well, frankly, with New Year's resolutions kind of typically come around to a lot of us. We talk about wanting to stop certain cycles of behavior. We've gone through a year of uh, eating too much or not getting enough exercise or uh, maybe having a habit that you'd like to get rid of, whatever that might be, smoking, whatever it is. And uh, we promise ourselves on December the 31st that come the new year, it's going to be a whole new life. And some folks are successful at keeping that New Year's resolution for a week or two, maybe. And usually long about February, we're still talking about making it happen because, after all, it's still you're early in the year. And somewhere along about March or April, well, that's all forgotten about. It is a, a cycle. It's, a, in fact, a very vicious cycle. And I think particularly so when you talk about issues of the heart and more significant life matters. I'm going beyond now trying to shed a few pounds to instead maybe trying to shed the behavior like an addiction to pornography or uh, maybe even the use of illicit drugs, which ironically, apparently, according to all the research that's available out there, Christians are no different than others as it relates to consumption of pornography, alcohol, drugs, etc., etc. So what of all of this? Why seemingly do those who should best understand what it's like to be free and to live in the, the light of becoming a new creature struggle just like everybody else? Why is it that so many Christians seem to be stuck in a cycle, a cycle of shame and addiction that just rolls over and over and over again. When you reach the point when there is no obvious difference, largely speaking, between um, Western Christianity and everybody else, you've got to ask yourself the question, uh, is there something wrong with Western Christianity, or at least how we see it or apply it? Dealing with that broader issue is the focus of a new book called The God-Shaped Heart, how correctly understanding God's love transforms us. Its author has been in private practice as a Christian psychiatrist since 1997. He is a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association, has written a number of best-selling books, including this latest one, The God-Shaped Heart. Dr. Tim Jennings, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Craig. What about these cycles? You know, as I suggest, we, we'd like to try to break the cycles of bad habits and things that we recognize in us that we just don't like or aren't healthy, uh, be it behaviors or problems related to relationships and, and, and other matters, including certainly our health and, and diet and exercise. And then seemingly we, we break these promises as fast as we make them. And I guess the big surprise here is, maybe it's not a surprise, that Christians who want to have a better handle on a lot of these issues seem to struggle with it just like everybody else. Why is that? Yes, so I think that's a brilliant question. And the reason we struggle with the same problem is because we all have the same core um, condition. We struggle with the same problem of fear and selfishness in our own hearts, insecurity. You, the, the neurobiologists might call it survival drives. But we all have the same core problem internally to ourselves, whether you're Christian or non-Christian. It really doesn't matter. All humanity suffers with that same problem. Some people might argue, well, 
this is maybe a failure of the theologians out there. They really haven't entirely um, best explained to us the way all of this is supposed to work. If we just better understood the law, the application thereof, or uh, had a deeper understanding of the teachings of Christ, all of this might change. But I have to wonder, is it a lack of our understanding of Christianity, or is it a sense of maybe some heart disease that, that part of this may be related to our knowledge or lack thereof, but a big part of it that really gets down to the, the center focus of even the purpose of salvation, and that is where our heart is in relationship to it all. Is that right? Right. I think, um, you know, speaking with medical language, um, when you have a misdiagnosis and you misdiagnose the problem, then the solution you try to bring usually doesn't work. And so much of what's happened in Western Christianity is they've diagnosed the sin problem not as a heart problem, not as something, you know, the Scripture talks about being reborn or or having the the mind of Christ or having the circumcision of the heart. There's a lot of heart work in the Christian, um, excuse me, the biblical metaphors describing trans... But the diagnosis of modern Christianity, it's not heart work, it's a legal problem. It's a behavior problem. You've done bad stuff and gets recorded in a ledger somewhere in the universe, and that that requires a legal infliction of some punishment. And so the solution for salvation is not heart renewal, rebirth, recreation. It is legal accounting of the bad deeds. And that's why Christians ultimately don't experience victory over these things, because they're not really taught that the problem is a heart problem in the first place that needs that needs renewal through our, our loving Savior. Now, and this fascinates me, because for one to read your CV, they would say, now, here is a guy, Dr. Jennings, who is clearly a well-educated expert in so many matters of the brain and behavior and so much of what goes on in the way we see the world, relate to the world, react to the world, et cetera, et cetera, from a, a, a thought process or from an emotional standpoint. And, and yet, as you're pointing out, while your field of expertise, so to speak, is treating the brain, so many of the issues that you touch on in the book are really not the the cause of a diseased brain as much as they are of a, I'll use the term, diseased heart. Is that right? That is exactly right. And in psychiatry, you know, in, in the human being, we have a physiological structure called the brain, but we also have a mind, um, and I, I distinguish those things in the book. You and I both have an English software package, and that English language we speak is not genetically pre- predetermined. I can't open your brain and touch English. Uh, and that English language was uploaded after birth, but it's so deeply wired into our sense of self, I can't even think without using it. I'm not bilingual. I only have one language. And so everything that I process in my mind goes through this language of of English. Well, this is an example of the difference between hardware and software. And uh, in our in our being, and much of the problems that people struggle with is not a problem directly of the brain itself, but it's a problem of patterns of thinking, beliefs that we hold, conclusions that we draw, and as we have patterns of thinking or beliefs that we hold, that then directs which brain circuits fire. And so the brain is reacting to the patterns of thinking that are directed by the individual self. All right, here's the tough question from a theological standpoint. We know that Scripture teaches us, once having surrendered ourselves, once having repented and turned from our wicked ways, that old things pass away, behold, everything becomes new. We become a new creature in Christ Jesus. And yet, there's an awful lot of the new creatures running around out there that are engaged in a lot of the old behavior. Why is that? Why is there that seemingly a big disconnect between what we're told is supposed to happen and the actual outcome of, of the behavior, which, and I want to be careful in stating that 
this is not true for all believers, and it certainly is not true for all of Western Christianity, though there seems to be a, a, a great march, and unfortunately it's not one forward, uh, but, but backward in this arena where our ability to experience that transformed life for some reason seems to be failing. Yeah, and that's because I think many people think what surrendering to Christ, they've been taught that surrendering to Christ is something other than what it really is. Mm. And, and it's, it's saying the sinner's prayer, claiming his blood uh, is, is your payment in your behalf, uh, applying to the record books in heaven. So they, they, they do this, but it's not necessarily what Christ or the New Testament is talking about. And so Christ himself said, they'll come to me in that end time and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and did all these things in your name. Not in the name of Buddha, in the name of Jesus, yet he'll tell them, Get ye hence, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. And so just can't claiming the name of Christ in some legal, mechanistic way to get your you know, accounting done in a book in heaven is not the same thing as having your heart renewed. Um, but for those who have had heart renewal, here's the big difference now. For those who have had heart renewal, it doesn't mean that they never stumble and fall again. But when they do stumble and fall, those who have heart renewal are grieved in the heart. They're sickened in the heart. They're like, Paul, oh, what a wretched man am I? Who will save me from this body of death? They hate that element of themselves. But those without heart renewal, when they stumble and fall, they make excuses for it. They blame others. It was, I had every right to do this. Or they cavalierly just say, well, my sins were placed on Christ at the cross, and they're all paid for anyway. Mm. Seems as if you're maybe suggesting here that there is a fundamental um, disconnect when it comes to um, Christianity from the viewpoint of some who see it as essentially fire insurance. By that I mean uh, we've written, we've read, or we've been told that God is very angry, He's very upset with us, but if we take these certain steps, we'll be able to come out from underneath that judgment and everything will be okay, and we get a you know a free hall pass into heaven, so to speak, that is fundamentally disconnected from any sense of, of true relationship with Him, and maybe even a fundamental uh, lack of understanding of what his grace and what his righteousness and what his judgment is really all about. is that Do you think that's part of the problem? You're exactly right. And the core root that makes this misunderstanding is the assumed fallacy that almost everyone believes is true, that God's law functions no differently than the laws that human beings make up. God is creator. He builds space, time, energy, matter, and life, and his laws are the laws upon which reality function, laws of physics, laws of health, and his moral laws. But we can't make reality, so we make up rules, and then we threaten to punish people who break our rules. And almost all of Christianity on every denomination I know has this idea that if you break God's rules, justice requires that God has to punish. And if he doesn't want to punish you because he loves you, so we send Jesus and punish Jesus in your stead. But the whole theory is that the pain and suffering for sin comes out from God upon the sinner unless somebody pays him off with the blood of a human sacrifice. So God That's is just really- one, he's just one big killjoy up in heaven. That's how much of Christianity presents them, and it's really paganism gussied up in Christian garb. Wow. Okay, about some people listening to our conversation right now that are either really confused or very upset. <laughs> and, you know, and, the, the real Christian thing is that we are sick in sin. Adam, when Adam sinned, human species got changed by that act. God didn't change, and God's law didn't change. And so God has been working through Christ to fix what Adam did to the human species and restore us back into God's original design. And, of course, that original design really and truly was to walk in fellowship with his creation. 
Exactly. And so the defect is not in God. The defect is not in God's law. The defect is in the human heart, the human mind. And thus God is working through Christ to fix us. But the penal legal model of Christianity has the defect in the heavenly record books or God's wrath or anger. And so all the actions of Christ are working on God or working in the books of heaven rather than working in us. And that cheats Christians out of the true transformed life that God has promised them. Well, it also seems to, in a sense, um, uh, sort of shift responsibility here in the sense that, as I said a moment ago, it, it, it creates a picture of God who's just a, a big, angry killjoy up there. And this is all about, well, if we just do whatever it is that we need to do to appease him, um, that'll make his anger go away. And at the end of the day, it seems as if a lot of the focus, therefore, is on simply the goal of making his anger disappear. And if we have said the magic words or behaved in a certain fashion and, and somehow perceived that we have succeeded at that, then all will be well. Completely void of any sense of God's true intention when it comes to his relationship with mankind. You're exactly right. Well said. And, and then when you bring in one of, one of the design laws, the law of worship, by beholding we become changed, or in psychiatry we call it modeling, but we neurobiologically and characterologically become like the God we admire and worship. Thus, if you worship an authoritarian dictator who, uh, who functions like you've described there, then you become more that way in the way you treat others, and the history of humanity is overwhelmingly affirming an evidence that that's exactly how Christians have done, whether it's burning witches in Salem, whether it's uh, the Inquisition or the Crusades, but Christians who have an authoritarian God eventually become authoritarian and abuse their fellow man in the name of Christ. And, and amazingly so, we see the decline in many respects of Western Christianity. And and you then have to wonder, is this because, in part, we have painted a very fallacious picture of who God is and what his true character is? And at the end of the day, uh, I would imagine this doesn't become very attractive. In other words, Scripture says that we should go out in the highways and byways and compel them to come in. And, and, and yet, uh, for a lot of young people in particular— that look at the brand of Christianity that has been presented them, they say, wow, there's not a lot here that's very attractive. If you're essentially telling me that I, I should do all of this, I should repent and go to church and read the Bible and, and, and engage in these quote-unquote Christian behaviors all simply so that I can avoid God coming along with a great big bat and bashing me over the head and then sending me off to eternal punishment. Wow, that just doesn't sound like something I want to sign up for. And when young people look at it with that viewpoint, because that's essentially the, the message, the, 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 the fallacy that we have created here. Is it any wonder when people say, you know what, I think I'm going to roll the dice here and uh, take my best shot. And if at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, I, I'm facing eternal punishment, so be it. But in the meanwhile, time, I'm not really interested in having anything to do with a God like that. A complete misinterpretation of who the character of God, what the character of God really is, and what his intentions really are. We're visiting today with Dr. Timothy Jennings. He is the author of a number of best-selling books. His latest, The God-Shaped Heart, How Correctly Understanding God's Love Transforms Us. We'll come back to more of the conversation right after this. Right, this, of course, is a look at traffic. And Michael Bennett, what's going on out there? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation, Dr. Tim Jennings, my guest, and we've been talking about his new book, The God-Shaped Heart, newly published by Baker Books and available at 
Christian bookstores across the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. And a large part of the discussion focusing on the sense that there is this cycle of shame and addiction. And apparently in many respects, as we've seen from uh, much of the data that's out there, Christians apparently have no different uh, experience at life than others do when it relates to everything from uh, uh, failed marriages to pornography addiction to substance abuse, et cetera, et cetera. And they say, well, wait a minute now. If, if, if they're a believer and they have an understanding of who God is and the transformative power of a relationship with the Christ, then where is the transformation part? And as we're hearing tonight from Dr. Jennings, that is perhaps because a lot of the focus has been on the goodies that we get or the punishment that we escape and not much on the relational aspects of what God intended here. And and as a result, there's been much misapplication of our understanding of law, judgment, God's punishment, and, and certainly that of the topic of sin and salvation. Where does this make a turn, in your opinion, Dr. Jennings? How do we get back on the right track for somebody that's stuck in that cycle, for example, that we, we talked about earlier, uh, and, and they think they're just simply trying to escape, you know, the big stick that God's got up in heaven ready to bash on their heads? How do we change our thinking about that and, most importantly, begin to really understand truly what God's intention is for a relationship with his creation? Well, Craig, that's just a great question, and it's something that I think many Christians really do struggle with, and we, we see that every day. For me, the real key is we come back to God's character, and how do we see him? Do we see him as designer, creator of reality, really, or do we see him as cosmic dictator? Okay, and that is the and that goes to the core of the law. So I come back to that with people over and over again. Is it just a system of rules that requires infliction of punishment, or did he actually build life to operate in a certain way? And when we operate in harmony with his design, it's healing for us. Let's talk about the laws of health for a minute. Doctors cannot get patients well in violations of the laws of health. You can't do it. Uh, they're always working to put them in harmony with those laws. But you can't avoid the damaging consequences for breaking the laws of health. Likewise, you can't avoid the blessings and improvement when you harmonize with the laws of health. When you understand God's laws that way, then you can start seeing God's actions in a completely different light. You talked about a God who's threatening to punish. Well, what about a child who's six years of age who plays in the street? Does the parent ever threaten to punish? And if in the child's mind, in, at that age, what's, the, what's wrong with playing in the street? Well, mommy will punish. But that's not really what's wrong. What's really wrong is the laws of physics will be broken and destroy the child's body when a car hits them. And so that's the real problem. But the child can't ha- comprehend it. So the mother or father step in and take on their shoulders in the child's mind the weight of that responsibility and the source of inflicted punishment in their child's mind until they can grow up and see reality. God has stepped in 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 Bible times and allowed himself to be viewed in that way for the children. So that they, but he longs for us to grow up and see reality that he was never the source. It was always what we were doing to ourselves in violation of his laws. And, and as you point out, that at the end of the day, the the law is not there to make man's life miserable. As the six-year-old child thinks that mom says no because she's simply trying to make his life miserable. Instead, it's in place as a deterrent in order to hopefully. Uh, prevent the child from befalling some bigger, more severe calamity, including the potentiality of, of losing life. Yeah, and so the Bible gives two two reasons for the Ten Commandments. One, it's a, it's a, a hedge of protection, uh, and the other, it's a 
um, school, it's, uh, the schoolmaster, the hedge of protection, to lead us to Christ, and it's a diagnostic instrument. I wouldn't have known what sin was if it wasn't for the law. And so it's like an MRI of the soul. We can look at that and say, hey, maybe there's something wrong with me, but the MRI does not cure anything. It only shows what's wrong. Mm-hmm. And there really is a balance here, isn't there, in the sense, uh, Dr. Jennings, that that some people will focus entirely, as we've been discussing tonight, entirely on the judgment side of God and and, and understand very little about his grace. Others that engage in that so-called sloppy grace where, oh, God, a loving God would never do that to you. And it's all about grace and no understanding of the, the judgment side of God. And in reality, one really can't exist without the other. I mean, it, it, his grace is of no value if, you, if there's not grace being provided that will help you avoid some sort of punishment. And, and, and likewise, if there is no possibility of consequences for certain actions, then there's no need for grace. So those words are heard, again, through the false law. When you use words like judgment and grace, they're, the argument's because they're people are operating on the platform of the law works like um, human law. But if you just substitute the word judgment with the word diagnosis, what is a diagnosis? A doctor comes in, assesses, examines deeply, and then makes a judgment. We call it a diagnosis. And so God diagnoses accurately the condition of every heart and mind. And, and so in Hosea, he said, Ephraim is tied to his idols. Let him go. That was a judgment. Revelation, those who are righteous, let them be righteous still. Those who are wicked, let them be wicked still. God's judgment is the accurate diagnosis of every heart and mind, but his judgment doesn't determine the condition of the heart and mind. It only diagnoses. What determines our heart and mind is whether we accept him and open our hearts to him and partake of the divine nature, as Peter talks about, that he provides through Christ or not. That's the determining aspect. God just diagnoses what we've chosen. And that, again, ultimately uh, uh, turns on our relationship with him. And again, it is the misunderstanding where oftentimes Christianity is presented as, well, you have a choice. You can either enjoy paradise or punishment. Uh, We can either send you to uh, Antarctica or to Hawaii. Which would you prefer? And we all say, well, I'd really rather go to Hawaii. Okay, we choose that, and we completely leave out of the equation the real ultimate point from God's perspective, and that is, a relationship with the very Creator. And and there is where so often we fall entirely short uh, of understanding so many of these principles. We have scratched the surface today, and I realize that uh, in our brief conversation with Dr. Jennings probably raised far more questions than we have answered. Um, but if it pushes you toward beginning a journey of seeking out answers to correctly understand God's true transformative love, well, then we've probably accomplished something good here. The book may help along that way. It's called The God-Shaped Heart, How to Correctly Understand God's Love Transforming Us. And the book, as I mentioned, is published by Baker and available at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area. It's a, it's a, it's a deep read. This is not a book that you read. It's not a nightstand book that you read in one evening. Uh, it's one that you work your way through, and uh, Dr. Jennings uses many examples um, and lessons out of his practice uh, to help show you the practical application here of how to break that cycle of shame and addiction and how to truly enter into the fullness of relationship with very God himself. Our thanks to Dr. Timothy Jennings for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. All right, we're going to uh, jump aside here for a look at traffic. And as we do so, Mr. Michael Bennett, what's going on out there? 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. We know how many kids, young people, old people, myself for that matter, enjoy sports. And, of course, sports can be wonderful when it comes to um, not only um, shaping uh, young people, but certainly understanding, uh, you know, what it means to be engaged in, in good sportsmanlike conduct. And, uh, you know, it's just plain fun at the end of the day. Uh, there's been an organization that for many, many years, in fact, uh, going on towards 65 years now, uh, that has used the arena of sports uh, to help challenge young people and in many respects, um, help point their lives in the right direction. It's an outfit that I was involved with for many, many years, many, many years ago. FCA, or the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And joining me now is Dan Britton, Executive Director of Field Ministry with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And Dan, welcome. Well, hey, thanks, Craig. It's good to be with you. Wow. You know, I was looking over some of the stats for FCA's outreach, not only nationally but globally, over the year that was 2018, and I got to say, uh, it's pretty amazing to see the way God has been using this organization on high school and college and university campuses, uh, with thousands of huddles taking place everywhere, and the manner in which not only it's helped young people advance uh, their skills from an athletic standpoint, but most importantly helped have a deep and profound impact on them spiritually. Tell us a bit about the year that was. Yeah, we, Craig, had the best year we've ever had in the 65-year history of FCA. We have expanded not only here in the U.S. with almost 20,000 schools that have on the junior high, high school, college level that uh, athletes and students and coaches gathered together for, we call it the power of the circle, be able to pray and encourage and fellowship together in small groups, but also we've seen our camp program expand, and we're reaching tens of thousands through our camp program. Um, I serve primarily outside the U.S. There's 4% of the world's population in the U.S., 96% outside the U.S., and so in the last several years, FCA made a strategic decision to take what we've been doing in the U.S. for all these years and now leverage it and serve the nations, and so we had a chance this past year to grow to 84 countries, and we've just seen God's hand on the ministry in 2018 like we never had before. Wow. Now, stateside, of course, this encompasses people that are involved in everything from football, basketball, uh, baseball, you name it. Overseas, I guess you see a lot of soccer, huh? <laughs> yeah, well, they, they, they don't know why we uh, call it soccer when they call it football. Football, you yeah. play with football, so i got to always say... American football now, and and so they kind of stole the term uh, football to be used for soccer. But, you know, Craig, it's interesting. I just got back in last night from Germany and Romania, getting ready to head out to New Zealand, Philippines, and Australia here next week. And and I tell you, it's not just soccer, but it's volleyball, it's swimming, it's judo, basketball, you name the sport. There's a lot of great sports that are being developed around the world, but soccer is king. Uh, for folks that are unfamiliar with the ministry of FCA, give us a little bit of a, an encapsulated look at, for example, what a huddle is, what goes on in a huddle, and how in a very practical way it can be used to help uh, deepen the walk of young people. Right. I, the, the kind of 30,000-foot level, uh, Craig, is we focus on training. So a lot of times we train volunteers to equip them, and then we 
focus on resources. We have a lot of Bibles. We distributed over 175,000 Bibles last year alone, getting God's Word into coaches and athletes and young people's hands. And then we put programs where we actually gather people in spaces and places for them to be able to connect and take life on life even further. And one of the primary ways, as you said, and you said you were involved in the huddle back in the day, but kind of it's our Bible study. It's our small group. And for, since the very beginning that we got started in 1954, at the very heart of FCA, the backbone of FCA is the huddle, the small group. And so we've been gathering in camp settings and the gathering on school settings, even now in communities with club sports that, that we believe life transformation doesn't happen in rows, but it happens in circles. So we want to get people into circles for study and for encouragement, building relationships. So we've uh, seen almost, again, almost 18,000, 18,500 huddles uh, expand in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, and then we have camps. We do a lot of outreaches in the camps that, that we're providing different sports to draw in not only Christians, but also uh, to be Christian seekers and we're providing an opportunity to combine faith and sports. We, we call our camps a week of inspiration and perspiration. And so, you know, really, uh, Craig, whether it's the school campus or the clubs, we are going into the locker rooms and into the ball fields to kind of connect with coaches and athletes so that we can change and transform the world for Jesus Christ. If someone listening right now says, gee, that sounds like a lot of fun, and I'm not sure if there's a huddle available um, at uh, my child's campus or on my campus or interested in getting one started, what's the best approach? Best way to connect with us online, uh, simply uh, fca.org. And on our main website, you can go to the upper right-hand corner and, and click in your uh, address, your actually your zip code, and up will pull our local office. We have over... 500 offices, Craig, throughout the U.S., and again, we have 84 countries that we're working in, and so uh, there's a country you're interested in, or there's a community that you want to get connected with our local staff or in a local office, you can find us that way, and and uh, we never turn down a volunteer. And, you know, let me just mention personally, uh, for, for parents and young people out there, uh, I found in my experience with FCA, and, and granted this is going back a lot of years now, but uh, in the late 70s and early 1980s, it was one of the most effective tools available uh, on campus to uh, to expose young people to the gospel, uh, to be able to bring young people of, of a like mind together um, in an atmosphere that was not only uh, spiritually building, but athletically building as well. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was a big part of my life, uh, certainly during my high school years, and, uh, and transforms a lot of lives. In fact, uh, a very dear friend of mine who uh, came to the Lord through an FCA huddle has gone on to be the senior pastor of a very large church here in the San Francisco Bay Area for many years. And, and it all began way back at an FCA huddle at South City High School. So uh, I encourage you to find out more about uh, getting involved with a huddle on your campus or reach out and find out how to start one. Information, again, available on the web at fca.org. That's FCA for Fellowship of Christian Athletes. .org. And our thanks to Dan Britton for being with us today and that update on uh, an amazing year for FCA. And imagine that. They had 240,000 participants uh, at their annual Fields of Faith 
um, events, and uh, my goodness, uh, thousands of young people coming to the Lord. It was uh, it was an amazing year for them. All right, we are coming up on an amazing hour. We have a book to give away tonight. Is that right? We're giving away any of the the the, the dog walked home books or whatever we called that yesterday. Nope. Nothing you know about whatsoever. All right. Yeah, probably took them all home. <laughs> Shall we give away something else? Let's give away the general manager's car if he's not listening. No, don't want to pull that off either, huh? It's all right. I've seen his car. Not worth it. Uh, <laughs> let's uh, let's get a look at some uh, traffic here, shall we? Got headline news for you, too. And then uh, we begin our 2019 series on finding a career that will satisfy you. All that coming up. Ooh, coming up next right now, though, coming up right here is a look at traffic with Michael Bennett. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.